Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our text, uh, verse 21 there. The title of today's message is The Scandalous Gospel. Uh, some of you um, resonate with that. You identify with that. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you might be thinking, Joe, how can you call it scandalous? Well, if I uh, do what I'm supposed to do this morning, you'll leave understanding why the gospel is so scandalous. I'd like to take a minute here quick to set the stage uh, with Corinthians. First and second Corinthians, Paul is speaking to believers. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to the church at Corinth, uh, those who know Christ as their Savior. Now, granted, in a congregation this size, there's probably the um, statistics would say there are people that are sitting here that do not know Christ. They don't. You might be sitting here, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And hopefully by the end of this message, if you were confused on what the gospel is, you, there will be no confusion after today's message. And I would exhort you to repent and trust Christ as your Savior. Next, I think definitions are important as well. Um, if you're talking to somebody and you define a word one way and they define a word another way, and you're talking about that, there can be a lot of confusions. This morning, our text confronts us with a very, very important doctrine this morning. That is the doctrine of imputation, which I believe is at the heart of the gospel message. Historically, the church has taught that the Bible teaches a threefold imputation in Scripture. That is, Adam's sin is imputed to man. On the cross, man's sin is imputed to Christ. And then when Christ rises, his righteousness is imputed to his people. And I would also like to add, that is what we believe here as well at CBC. The word imputation comes directly from the Latin. It is an accounting term. It means to apply to one's account. Expenses are debited. Income is credited. The King James word for this often as we read it, if you read the King James, is the word reckon. You will find this multiple places. Charles, Charles Hodge defines it this way. The divine act to impute, and I would argue that it is a divine act, as he states, the divine act to impute is to attribute, attribute anything to a person or persons upon adequate grounds as a judicial or meritorious reason of reward or punishment. Let me say that one more time. The divine act to impute is to attribute anything to a person or persons upon adequate grounds as the judicial or meritorious reason of reward or punishment. So the word scandalous also comes from, uh, it's kind of, it's, trans, it's transliterated in the Greek, but it comes from uh, the Greek, and it, oh, oftentimes it's translated in Scripture as stumbling block. The gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Now let's look at some quick context. In a flyover, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he was anything but flattering. To his very own dismay, instead of a maturing as a church, they had developed a number of serious problems. Some of which included divisions in the church, abuse over the Lord's Supper, disorder in worship services, theological confusion over the resurrection, Christian liberty issues, and that's just to name a few. 
And to say the least, Paul was pretty grieved. However, in Paul's second letter, he has a turn of heart. He is much more joyful as he hears about the church's genuine repentance. As they turn from these false teachings and turn to what the apostles had been teaching. Though they were repentant, there were still false teachers in their midst peddling their lies. So Paul, as only Paul can do, exhorts them. He exhorts them about God, who God is, the truth of God's word, and the outrageous truth about the gospel. Let's go to chapter 5. I'll start in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to them the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me be clear. Jesus did not come to rescue you out of darkness, just to encourage you to try one more Bible reading plan, just to get you to pray another half an hour, or to kindly give you one more guilty pleasure to assuage the pain of this world. No. Jesus Christ came into this world to deal with the root problem, sin and its wages, death. For our sake, he, God, made him Jesus Christ. Let this sink in. Grasp this, please. Made him Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus Christ, we become the righteousness of God. Do we get that? When it says God made him to be sin, it is to make Jesus personally responsible for its punishment. This would apply a legal imputation of guilt, of the guilt of sin to Christ. To impute something is to ascribe or attribute it to someone. On the cross, when our sin was imputed to Christ, God made him liable for the guilt accrued not by himself, but by others, by you and I. It's scandalous because it makes no earthly sense. You or I wouldn't come up with a plan like this. This does not make sense. But so often, as we read in Scripture, we're confronted that God's ways are not our ways. Verse 21 beautifully summarizes what happened through the death of Christ when he was lifted up. Jesus had the sin of his people imputed to him so that while sinless, he could be legally charged with the punishment of sin. Calvin says it this way. 
He assumed in a manner our place. He took our place. That he might be a criminal in our room and might be dealt with as a sinner, not for his own offenses, but for those of others. Inasmuch as he was pure and exempt from every fault and endured the punishment that was due to us, not himself. To be clear, Paul and others affirmed the perfect sinlessness of the Savior. Jesus is, is the only human who did not know sin. He never sinned. Both he and Peter and John attested to his holiness. John 8, 46, 1 Peter 2, 22, 1 John 3, 5. And yet, God made him to be sin. Paul's language is careful. He did not say Jesus became a sinner. That would be untrue. Rather, Jesus became the representative sin bearer. He identified with 100% with the sin of this world when he died on the cross. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God regarded Jesus as if he were sin itself. In case you missed it, let me put it this way. Christ, by being made sin, by imputation, took full responsibility for it, was identified with it, charged with it, paid it, and paid its penalty. Does this not strike you as outrageous? It does to me. And yet it was God's plan from the beginning. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Well, what kind of sin are we talking about here? You know, we all come into church, we have a smile on our face, and yet what's really in our hearts? I challenge you to examine yourself. We're going to be partaking in the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. What kind of sin did God come, Jesus Christ, did God send Jesus Christ into this world to take care of? Let's ponder that. How deep did the perfect God of the universe sink into this sin-sick world? You see, there's so much more to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God sending himself through his son Jesus Christ to earth. There's so much more to it that God has woven together since the very beginning of time. More than I will ever even grasp. Piece by piece, over generations, of time, generation after generation, 42 generations are recorded in the first chapter of Matthew. Now I get it. <laughs> when I'm doing some Bible reading and I come to a genealogy, I'm tempted to skip over it. Why? Because while genealogies at first glance may appear irrelevant, names often are hard to pronounce, but they hold an important place in Scripture. Genealogies reinforce the historicity of Scripture. They confirm its prophecy and provide insight to the character of the very God we worship and also insight to the lives of his people. And they aren't always the good parts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Perez of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abjah, and Abjah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abed, and Abed the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As I was reading and studying for this, I came across this explanation of the genealogy that just I had to share, I have to share it with you. One pastor explains it like this. Think of, think of this exhaustive genealogy, this particular one that I just read like a puzzle. Each name that's listed in the genealogy is an infamous edge piece. You know when you, when you start a puzzle, you separate all the edge pieces and you create the frame. So each one of these names in this genealogy are the edge piece. And each sin that's recorded that we see, and even the sins that aren't recorded, fills in the frame. Are you picturing it? Here are a few. From Adam and Eve eating the fruit to get us started. Cain, and Cain murdering Abel. Abraham, who allows Pharaoh to sleep with his wife out of selfish motives. Judah, this is Jesus' lineage. Judah and Tamar, who conceive an incest and deceit. From Ruth, the Moabite, a descendant of Lot, who slept with his daughters. 
to David who conceived Solomon in compromised conditions after adultery and murder. From Ahaz who fails to test God and gives his people over to the Assyrians. All the way to Joseph who is betrothed to Mary. A scandal for the ages as it appears that a young virgin has disgraced herself and her family. And that's just some of what's listed for us. I believe all these evil, racy, offensive, and let's just be honest, R-rated texts and sins are listed and told to us for a very specific purpose. As they slowly piece together a beautiful picture, one at a time. It is Jesus becoming all sin from generation to generation. When we take these puzzle pieces and lay them out and fit them together, what we see is that Jesus coming into the world and assuming human flesh is much more than just dipping his toe into the sludge of sin, but rather diving headfirst, drowning himself in it. When he steps foot into this world, he's not just damp. He's not just a little soggy. He is soaking wet with sin, and yet perfect. Why is the gospel scandalous, you ask? Because it is the perfect, righteous Son of God becoming sin from generation to generation, from Adam to you until he comes again. He doesn't just take your sin from you. He carried it perfectly for 33 years all the way to the cross. your addictions, your guilt, your shame, your faults, your failures, all of it. He takes it to Golgotha, nailing it to the cross. It is crucified. It is finished. Every single ounce of sin is crucified. When it says Jesus Christ became sin for us, do we grasp that? When Paul says God made Jesus to be sin, it was for us, for our benefit. And the benefit is that we are joined to him in faith. The third act of divine imputation. We become the righteousness of God, as the passage says. God himself, the complete opposite of unholy in sin. What? Again, Paul's language is careful. He went further than saying we become righteous. Rather, we become the very righteousness of God. Who was sinless became sin for us that we, so that we who are sinful might become righteous. If you're sitting here today and you are in Jesus Christ, God only sees the perfect work of his Son. As we sit here, as we contemplate what God took to the cross on our behalf, how can that be? I mean, at times, I mean, I'm up here preaching to you, and at times when I'm confronted with the deceitfulness of my own heart, I think, how can this be? But God sees me as he sees Christ. 
And yet, isn't it the infinite generosity and love of God that causes us to want to obey him? For the church? For us? This is a message of pardon. We have been ransomed from sin, death, and Satan by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. As Luther, Martin Luther says, it is the son of the living God who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all my sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, which we so often chase after, but with his holy and precious blood, with his innocent suffering and death, that I, that you, may be called his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in an everlasting righteousness, innocence, blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. If you're sitting here today and the gospel isn't beautiful to you, I would argue that you do not fully grasp the fa your failure to meet God's perfect standard. Because that is when the gospel becomes beautiful to us. When we realize our failure to meet his perfect standard. Justification comes from God's grace alone. And is ours through faith alone. But we cannot miss, we cannot miss that the ground of being declared righteous by God is due to the work of Jesus Christ alone. We come and contribute nothing. Jesus did not come to give us our best life now or to bring us health and wealth. He came for one purpose, to earn righteousness for us that would overcome death and make us worthy of the new heavens and the new earth. Are you living in light of that today? As we start the second month of a new year, as we look to the future, there are a lot of uncertainties. There are a lot of things that are going to come flying at us. We have no idea. But God is on his throne. And you can be certain of this fact, that God, the God of the universe wanted you from eternity past. The Son of God entered into our finite reality, our frailty, our weakness to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. And God sends his Holy Spirit as a seal that will sustain us until life everlasting. Nations will come Nations will continue to rise and nations will fall. Religions will come and go. Technology and innovation are always changing. Cultures will grow and implode, but what never changes is God and his message of salvation. The world scoffs. The world scoffs at the church's message. People will mock the church. People do mock the church for her constant one-note preaching. Week after week, month after month, we preach Christ crucified and risen. 
as we transition into some music for communion, I want to leave you with the words of 2 Timothy. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for allowing us to see the truth of your word, God, so that we could be called your own. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I just pray, Lord, that we would come with hearts of gratitude, hearts of thankfulness for the beauty of the gospel, for what you saw, from what you planned from eternity past. You sought, you redeemed, you rescued. We praise you in Jesus' name.